She told me um, to have big dreams, even though I was seven years old in communist Poland that really was not letting people out of the country. And I had a dream to go and visit PEI. When you have this connection with something that you remember from your childhood, it's just like it's a different level of experience. Should the artists change their visions to project a world that is less real? Or should they stick to a very brutal depiction of what it is currently in order to influence reactions and change in the real world? My heart is white and red and it's the flag and it's just like that's what I identify as. Like I don't see myself as American, I see myself as Polish even though I, I wasn't born there. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. I'm Małgorzata Banikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 56th episode of Polcast. Matthew Cuthbert, who is that? It's a girl. I can see that. Where's the boy? There weren't any. Just her. I figured we just couldn't leave her there, no matter what the mistake was. You figured? Oh, this is a fine kettle of fish. This is what comes of sending word instead of going ourselves, Matthew. You don't want me? You don't want me because I'm not a boy? Maple syrup, Leonard Cohen, hockey, these are Canadian icons. There is one more, very special, Anne of Green Gables, the red-haired orphan whose life in Prince Edward Island was described by author Lucy Maud Montgomery, also known as L.M. Montgomery. The book written in 1908 has since been read by millions all over the world, generation after generation. It has been adapted as films, TV movies, and animated and live-action television series. Musicals and plays have also been created, with productions annually in Canada since 1964 of the first musical production, which has toured in Canada, the United States, Europe, and Japan. Bernadetta Milewski is a Pole living in the U.S. whose life has been influenced by Anne of Green Gables in many different ways. I reach her in Prince Edward Island. Bernadetta, your life is inextricably connected with Anne of Green Gables, and I'm sure you can tell us about the beginning of this connection. 
It all started many years ago, some um, 37 to be exact, when my older cousin asked if I liked reading books. When he heard that I did, he suggested this amazing book that he thought I might like. It was Anne of Green Gables, Ania Zielonego Wzgórza in Polish, by um, Ella Montgomery. I was just starting elementary school in Poland, um, which back then was still in the Eastern Bloc. The martial law had been just introduced, and everything was rationed. So um, in Ella Montgomery's books, I found an escape, a more colorful life than the one I was living in Poland. Reading Anne made me fall in love with uh, Prince Edward Island. This distant island in Canada I knew absolutely nothing about other than what I read in the books. I hope that one day I would be able to visit this island, but not many people believe that it would happen. I think around uh, when I was around 17 years old, I doubted that myself. I thought that, you know, those were childhood dreams and they were nice as dreams, but um, it would never happen in reality. I think, you know, I was just about to turn 18 and, uh, you know, you were supposed to be an adult with the attitude towards life that you have to go to university, graduate, start working, start family, and it's not time to have uh, childhood dreams fulfilled. In 1999, I was actually just visiting the States, mm. and um, when uh, when my um, future husband said, oh, why don't we go to Niagara Falls, I said, oh, it's Canada, yeah, let's go. <laughs> and I remember talking to people there and telling them all about my love for Anne of Green Gables, mm. but they would say, oh, but it's so far from here. I, I knew it was far, but I was in Canada. I was closer to Anne. It was a funny story because I didn't have the Canadian visa back then, and they let me in. Twice it happened in my life that Without the visa, I was let into Canada. So I think it was just my love for Anne that worked. Miracle. <laughs> so in 2000, I moved to the States. I uh, married an American with a Polish name, third generation, but doesn't speak Polish. So I got much closer to Canada. But, you know, it was um, adult life. Then finally, around 2005, I decided next year I definitely want to do it. Um, I was a little worried. I thought that the island may disappoint me a little. You know, I was an adult and I've done different things by then, but I, I still wanted to do it. And I'm very glad I did. In 2006, we did go to PEI for the first time. At that point, I, I obviously thought it was the only time because if you have a childhood dream, you're, you're supposed to fulfill it, but why would you return. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went and it was perfect. I walked the red dirt roads and the red sand beaches and I visited Green Gables. I remember crying at Green Gables. I remember being ready at 6 a.m. because mm -hmm. we, we came very late the previous day and we were staying very close to Green Gables. I remember my <laughs> husband sleeping and me being all, all um, dressed and ready to, to explore at 6 a.m. But they opened at nine, so I had to wait for three hours. Yeah. But but we did go, and it was just amazing, you know. Uh, I think there is something very exciting when you fulfill your dreams. It's you can obviously vacation in different places, and it's beautiful most of the time, you know. That's how you choose your vacations. But when you have this connection with something that you remember from your childhood, it's just like. It's a different level of experience. So I was just like in a dream for those few days we were here. And I left. I had tons of photos. 
I rode on uh, the beach of uh, PI National Park, Wyspa Księcia Edwarda, which is Prince Edward Island in Polish with the red mm-hmm. stones, took pictures of that. I thought that was it. But it wasn't. <laughs> Six years later, somebody asked me for the pictures. And when I was looking at them, I just felt this longing for, for the island because I remembered how beautiful it was. And I knew I saw all the places, but something was telling me that I need to return. Five days later, we were actually on our way. And my husband, my four-year-old daughter, uh, we all decided to, to give it another uh, chance, and we all fell in love uh, with the island. I remember we were crying on the Confederation Bridge when we were leaving, and we uh, decided that the following year we would be back. And uh, we were returning every year after 2012 until 2016, when I don't know how that happened, but stars magically aligned, and we were told about this amazing property right on the Lake of Shining Waters, which obviously is described in the books. And um, we ended up purchasing a home that we called the Blue Moon because things like that don't happen, you know, to normal people. And it happened to us. We now own a home and uh, can spend every summer on PEI. So we got the house um, on the land that used to belong to Lucy Maud Montgomery's grandfathers. Uh, it was quite extraordinary because we were told about this property by Robert Montgomery, her relative, and um, he is obviously an islander. Islanders are um, not that warm when it comes to um, people from away. They actually have a name for people who come to the island. Of course, there are tourists, but if you... Um, are on the island and you're not uh, born on the island, you come from away. Uh, and, so they call uh, them come from away. Yes, come from away. They don't trust those people as much as they trust islanders. So um, when Robert told me that this house will be for sale, I was very surprised because um, the land is owned by two families here. It's either the Montgomery's obviously, um, the relatives, and then the Campbells, who are also relatives. Lucy Montgomery's mother's sister uh, married a Campbell. So there is a pond in between, and on one side you have Montgomery's, and on the other side you have the Campbells. And here I am with my Polish name, Maleski, right in the middle, and I feel like Rachel Lind, who has the best view, can watch Ingleside on one side, and then um, Silverbush and the Anne of Green Gables Museum uh, across the lake. The fascination, obviously, is not only yours, right? I mean, this is, this is, I mean, yours probably is very special and very strong. But not unique, you know? I was very surprised to learn about that because when I was reading Anne of Green Gables in my little town in Poland, I thought there couldn't be another person reading somewhere in the world and being so fascinated with the Mm -hmm. story. But I was wrong because apparently in Japan, Italy, Germany, um, England, you know, everybody was reading as well. And I often think about it. I'm just imagining the, those little girls, because it's mostly girls, not only, but girls, and spe- especially in those places all over the world, reading the same book in different languages. And the book has been translated into how many yes. languages? It's over 35 right now. Here we go. So what do you think, Bernadetta, as, as a real expert in Anne of Green Gables, because you have obviously become a great expert, what is it that fascinates so many people all, all over the world? I mean, there's so many books, so many books for young girls or for young people. What is it? 
Well, I was really thinking a lot about this uh, phenomenon. I think Montgomery was quite a genius. She wrote her books in such a way that we all thought that she wrote just for us because of her style of writing and appeals to every reader individually. What Anne means to me, it's not the same what she means to a Japanese girl or a Korean girl, but we all take from the story what we need. It was very easy to become a silent hero of Montgomery's books. Um, You knew you were not a main character, but maybe a neighbor, maybe Anne's classmate at Avonlea School. And the descriptions that you find in the books kind of speak to some sort of longing that we have for a simple world of responsibility, a world of everyday pleasures structured around the seasons. And even though life was certainly more difficult back then, at the same time, I I think it was less confusing and nature played a significant role. And we all kind of need that connection with nature. Other than that, all those lessons that Anne taught us. She taught us how to be a great and a loyal friend, right? Um, She taught us how to deal with rejection. She taught me um, to have big dreams, even though I was seven years old in communist Poland that really was not letting people out of the country. And I had a dream to go and visit PEI. Also, Anne taught me how to find beauty in everyday life. So um, she made our lives more colorful, She Mm -hmm. became our friend. She was our kindred spirit. Someone who was always there for me. I noticed that for many people, she was the only friend they had. You now spend so much time on uh, Prince Edward Island. To what extent Anne is part of its culture? How do the people who live there feel about it? Are they happy with it? Of course, it brings tourism. It brings thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. But what is the real feeling for Anne in uh, among people who live there permanently? Well, so this is a very interesting question, and um, it is quite surprising for someone who made the literary pilgrimage to PEI to learn that many islanders have never read the books, and some PEI National Park employees who work at Green Gables are not familiar with the story. Also, some relatives admit that they never read any book by Ellen Montgomery. This is something she actually was struggling with throughout her life, that she didn't feel very appreciated by her own family. The words, uh, you don't want to me because I'm not a boy. They couldn't be the other way around. It couldn't be a story about a boy who would say, you don't want me because I'm not a girl. This was the feeling that Maud had throughout her life. She always competed with her male cousins for attention. She uh, always was considered much lower than anybody else. Let's say, you know, a girl has to do 100% probably more than, than a boy to be noticed. And this was the story of her life. And surprisingly, it almost is still present here on the island, uh, appreciated all over the world, but not quite on the island. Of course, there are many people who have some connection with Anne because um, tourism is uh, a very important industry on PEI. So throughout people's lives, they may end up working at the gift shop or at the restaurant. And because of Anne, there are tourists here on the island. So um, these people oftentimes are grateful for 
and influence and mods rating. But a lot of people are not thrilled by her. They don't think she was so amazing. And uh, this is very surprising to me. You fulfilled your dream, but you have gone much beyond. You have been a guide. People have visited your place. You have become like an ambassador of Anne of Green Gables. What do you do to promote her? When I went to PI in 2013, right before that trip, I figured this was going to be my third time. And uh, I've obviously had seen all the important places by then. But how to make it special? I figured I would start blogging about it. My idea of the blog was just to do a few posts so people can see all the places, you know, if they Google and maybe they'll get inspired to go and see the island. So 2013, right before the trip, I started blogging kind of uh, as an idea, a blog for friends who then won't have to ask me for more pictures. And then I don't know, it's my blog will be five years old on August 20th. And um, it just kind of started living its own life. <laughs> because of the blog, you know, uh, next trips were more interesting because um, before that I would enter, um, let's say, the birthplace of Ella Montgomery or Silver Bush, uh, which is the end of Green Gables Museum. And I would be a tourist. Because of the blog, I became brave and I said, I blog about my trips to PEI. Is there anything interesting you'd like to tell me about this place that I could tell other people? So that really created interesting um, situations for me. And I feel like the blog gave me more in return because I was treated differently and um, I got to experience things I wouldn't have otherwise. So that has become your mission in a way, right? I mean, you are an expert. Do you find that there are people around the world who are like you? Oh, yes. A lot of people like me. There are people actually on the island who came from Japan, who came from Korea, who actually um, now also, you know, help other people from their countries to come and see the island, who have some little businesses on the island. There's something about Anne that, uh, you know, we all feel this huge passion for. And I think that's the uh, wonderful thing that Anne keeps giving us. To hear more about Bernada Tamilewski and her passion, and to hear more of this conversation about her life in PI, the relationship with the islanders, and Nadia, her 11-year-old daughter, a published author, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. We haven't talked about the Polish language for a while. Since it's vacation time and people travel, we thought we could help those going to Poland with some tongue twister-like names of Polish cities. Let's see how some Americans pronounced those unpronounceable Polish city names in a BuzzFeed video on YouTube. Through it. Grudzons. Nope, not gonna get this one. That he's got a d- Grudsquids. Grudzigoths. Grudziads. Grudgaz. Grudzions. Oh, that's much Frenchier than I thought. Wotswadek. Okay, this one looks like it has more of the made-up letters. Not made up. They're Polish. That's theirs. What do they sound like? Um. Wowgwak. Latakik. Lokloek. What? Wotswadek. See, now I've learned that W is really a V. 
That's something I should have known from the beginning. Vessels. I just get thrown when they throw all those consonants together. I'm gonna guess that the R does not make a sound, and that it's zesal. Ruju reso zesal. Zesal. Jeshu. I appreciate the use of Z's because we don't use Z's enough. Kanstahova. Cheshova. Chistakawa. Cheshtakawa. Cheshashawa. Cheshashava. How does it sound? Kanstahova. No. Bidgosht. This looks like just something you pulled out of a bag of Scrabble. Like you just reached in and pulled out a bunch of letters and you're like, well, I'm. S Z C Z sound is one that escapes me. It's got its own echo. Well, we're sorry to inform you, but there are many, many of those that are far from such easy ones as Lublin or Radom. For example, Bydgoszcz, Rzeszów, Szczecin, Tchew, Częstochowa, Kętrzyn, and many others. Our advice? Practice long before you go to Poland and have to buy a train ticket or ask directions. Dad doesn't have skinnies. Because your dad's bylaw only does his tow park cars. But if you're a chaser, Bye, law. You calling this in? Hey, Chaser. I don't even afford groceries. Always seven days a week. Whatever we need. Get in your truck and earn your keep. Money's on the road. In our last episode, I spoke with Polish-Canadian filmmaker Rafał Sokołowski, an award-winning film and theater director, whose short films have been shown worldwide. We talked about 22 Chasers, starring Brian J. Smith, his feature debut, which premiered in Toronto on the weekend we released that episode. I attended the opening night and found the movie very well made, gripping and powerful. I did have a problem, though, with its ending. Unable to make a living in a decent way, Ben, the main character, a tow truck driver, gets sucked into the corrupt and violent world of ruthless crash chasers. A risky move, which assures financial security for him, his wife, and his young son, but the evil wins. I really did want to talk to Rafał about this. I reached him when he returned to Ohio. We talked to you in our previous episode about the upcoming opening night of your film. Now it's all behind you. How was it? I mean, I was there. I was very, very impressed. Well, you know, it's always really joyous moment for a filmmaker to complete a chapter of developing and making a film and then finally delivering it to the screen and, you know, having um, so many audiences come and, and enjoy the film and then engage in interesting conversation. All of this is is superbly rewarding. Um, you know, I, I suppose the fact that the film was the second most watched film in the first weekend and that got extended run at Carlton because of that is, is a bonus. Um, uh, always reading interesting reviews uh, with not just a pat on the shoulder, but kind of 
interesting readings of the text of the film is is really what's most important uh, is this this sense that what I wanted to say with this film has somewhat landed and people are reacting to it that's 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 really why I'm doing what I'm doing um, and and that's super fun well the, the opening night was amazing it was like full house with a lot of interest a lot of discussion and everybody enjoyed it. It was like, it definitely made an impression on the audience, including me. Um, there were some people who were having some little objections as to the uh, ending of the film. So I thought we could talk about it. I mean, one of them was me, <laughs> <laughs> myself, right? The, the main character who has a very important moral choice to make decides to go to the side of the evil, in a sense, to win uh, financial safety and, uh, I guess, to be able to stay in Toronto. So did you ever discuss some options uh, with uh, your screenwriter? We've worked on the script for about six months before it moved to production, and so um, essentially every single stone was unearthed and we've looked at options and alternatives. We did want to, to tap into immorality, you know. I think it's fair to say that in the end he makes immoral choice, and that's something that I certainly wanted to talk about um, because that's certainly something that I find very interesting about um, human nature. That morality is just a spectrum; it's, it's not what we view it often as as a fixed, you know, list of rules and kind of unbendable. Uh, protocols, I think it changes with the position. And that's what always fascinates me, that it seems that with changing the um, um, situation, the morality is the very first thing that goes. But I would also say further, you know, I, I really enjoy this conversation. I really enjoyed your upset voice uh, during the Q&A, because I feel that Speaking of morality is, is a position of a privilege. I think that it's easier for somebody who is privileged. And what I mean by this, you know, um, some sort of level of education, some sort of financial freedoms that allow you to emphasize morality in your life. And I think that that is a unique position that we privileged people, and I include myself in it, impose on everybody else. But I don't think it's true. I don't think a person who is making a decision on the well-being of their child, is necessarily considering moral outcomes of that decision. And I don't think they should. I, I think that that is an illusion that we have. But in this film, that's what I wanted to talk about. Your character was not in the position that he had totally no choice. He could have left Toronto. He could have left this, this hellish place and this hellish uh, environment and, and it's certain. true. Mm -hmm. I, that's true. I don't think it, I don't think it, it needs to uh, be a question of no choice. I think it always it's a question of what are the priorities in his choices. Obviously, leaving Toronto was uh, less prioritized than than letting go of his moral compass. To me, this film was a lot about watching a process of somebody making tremendous mistakes on mm -hmm. every level, because. I kind of get off on observing this, that we under pressure are prone to make these mistakes. And I think the louder we proclaim that we are, you know, following this kind of moral trajectory, 
I get more and more suspicious about that because I just wait for that corner where that notion gets challenged and what happens. You know, and I look at it with a bit of a bitter smile because it's a frightening thing that this is part of our nature, but it's also a fascinating thing. And and I like to observe how we deal with this. But I didn't really mean to be uh, moralizing. I was trying to put myself in the position of that guy. Uh, with my son being my main priority. And then I thought, okay, like how very short-sighted this was. It's like a Band-Aid solution. Uh, in fact, even worse than that, because you're, you are uh, subjecting your child to a very, very likely possibility of a horrible uh, disaster because it's going to get worse and worse, right? Not to mention the fact that where is your whole thing about being some kind of role model to your child? No, no absolutely. And... If you uh, have given Ben a week to think about it, I'm pretty sure he would come up with a different alternative. But you're looking at a single night where his ankle is broken, his money gets stolen, Mm -hmm. and his wife tells him that she is leaving. And his son rejects him and says, you're a liar. And all of these things amount to some sort of emotional climax where this is the decision he comes up with. And is his macho a part of this decision? Absolutely. And that's what I want to talk about, that even this guy who's so morally balanced, or at least pretends to be, you know, these vengeful, macho things will kick in and he will do something really, you know, stupid. And I wanted to be there with the camera kind of observing how that process happens, because I see this over and over. And mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated and terrified by this. You know, it, it, some people say that writers write into what they fear the most. And I think it is to some extent true for me. I am fascinated with ideas that in some way overwhelm me, that terrify me, that I cannot confront it on a rational level. I need to find a form that is artistic to somehow make sense of it or even observe it. And that's kind of what this what this uh, film was for me. So what is really the the function of film or any art form in the society today. Remember there was a question that a lady asked who was sitting yes. closer to you on the right. She said, what do I tell my son mm-hmm. about this? Right. Mm-hmm. What do I, what, mm-hmm. what kind of message does it send? Yeah. And then again, the question is like, do, do you have the responsibility of answering questions or is it only that you have responsibility or right to ask questions? You know, you asking amazing question because I think that's, we historically have seen when art, this activity that humanity has engaged with for forever, once you impose a function, it stops functioning. It stops doing what it's supposed to do. It's this free force where it works best when it's actually free of these responsibilities. I know for myself that I'm not attempting to moralize. You know, if I was to describe my objective, my entry point into this would be to observe and project something that I see true in the world in order to provoke reactions from people. It's kind of like a a concept of a mirror that you place a mirror in front of a society so that it could see itself in that mirror. Now, is it constructed, crooked, deformed? Perhaps. My objective is to show something that I feel is existing 
in the real life, in the real world. If the audience sees the ideal world, is there an incentive to do something about it, to change it? Should the artists change their visions to project a world that is less real? Or should they stick to a very brutal depiction of what it is currently in order to influence reactions and change in the real world? It's a big question. I don't really want to pretend that, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I've got philosophical background on this. But at this moment, I am committed to talking about things the way I see them. And if they end up politically incorrect, I think the right reaction to that would be by changing the real world, not the film, which is the projection of it. So why not documentaries, uh, Rafał? Oh, it's an excellent question. And I wanted to do documentary for a while because that is, in essence, the purest of what I'm talking about. The craft is very different, and I think the personality of the filmmaker needs to be fitting that form. And I don't think I am a documentarian. It's a terrifying idea to enter, really enter into somebody's life and make commentary on it and live with these people and and weave a narrative out of that. I'm simply not cut out for it. And there's many people who pulled out for that reason. Kishlovsky is one of the examples mm-hmm. of somebody who's left documentary at some point because what haunted him is the idea of how influential his presence was in these people's lives, and he could not live with this. He wanted to create a fiction to, to talk about similar issues, but in a safety of a kind of synthetic environment. And I think that's the major thing that is stopping me from entering documentary. And I'm not saying I will never do a documentary film. Maybe maybe I will. But at this point, I have to say it's a frightening idea to get that close to my subject. You know, when I was showing um, Light Chasers in Krakow, the documentary that won the festival, the subject was a first communion in a Polish household. Quite a politically loaded subject, if you, if you can believe it, the uh, filmmaker who was receiving the award was rather sad, and I couldn't figure out what's happening for the few minutes. And then he ended up his speech saying, you know, most filmmakers would be very happy in the position that I am, but if I could turn time back, I would not have made this movie, because it cost me too much. Later on, through private conversations, I found out that him making a film about his own family has caused uh, a breakdown of this family and a divorce. And, and, and that's kind of the byproduct of him being very honest and very close to the subject matter. And as we say in the industry, not pulling punches, but really getting to the heart of the things. What have you learned from making this film? One of the things that this project has taught me is that you sh- I should never be entitled to my ideas that the universe will always find a way to deny me the ability to execute the ideas that I originally saw in my imagination. And that in these situations, as a filmmaker, I, you know, my duty is to find brilliance in plan B and C and D and what have you. It's not enough to throw in a towel and say, well, my producers could not secure this location and therefore I give up on this scene. I need to be able in a short period of time to regroup and come up with new creative solutions to a problem that is not going away. And 
that I need to look at this, that in this new equation, I actually have potential to make better creative decisions than those originally made. And that's the best attitude to take on here. What about Toronto? Is it a terrible city? <laughs> I love Toronto because partially, because partially it's a it's a terrible city. That's why it was perfect setting for this urban western because it's got all these shady layers and the underbelly and these beautifully glamorous, glossy facade and underneath this corruption. It's a it's a full dimensional urban center and got tremendous pressures and puts people on the line that reveals their nature. So from a cinematic standpoint, it's a gorgeous town. And I'm surprised that there isn't more films shot in Toronto. Oh, there are many, it's, apparently. It's like yeah, they say are, it's right. the Hollywood, Hollywood of the North, isn't it? Yes. But very often these productions come in to shoot in Toronto because it's cheaper, mm -hmm. but they will mock it as another oh, city. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the advantages to, you know, the dollar translation. But, but but really, they will pretend that it's, you know, a part of Chicago or something like that. And Toronto looks like many other American cities. But what I'm talking about is narratives that are based here and mm -hmm. disclose that this is Toronto. As you notice in my film, there's several times that streets, names of recognizable places and even Toronto itself has been mentioned. So what next? Well, 22 uh, was a large production uh, with huge budget and uh, kind of an army of people. I'm currently writing a script that is, in terms of production platform, much simpler. It's bounded mainly by one location and it's got much fewer characters and it's a tragedy and it's an interpersonal story. I think what I want to do is um, lend myself in a very intimate set where I can have access to the material, to the characters, in the way that I really felt it was stretched on this production, on 22. I am wanting to work in a context where things will feel much more intimate, where almost, you know, in the ideal world, I don't know if I'll be able to pull it off, I would love to settle and live on location with my actors and kind of wake up and have breakfast with them and go on set working scene by scene in chronological order and discovering things with them. I don't know if I'll be able to do quite that, but that is the direction with my with my next project. To learn more, just visit our website at mypodcast.com. This is another segment resulting from our collaboration with, with a group of students from Poland, history buffs who created a very interesting website, greatpoles.pl. We featured them in our episode 49. Hello everybody and welcome to yet another segment of Great Poles on Polecast. I am Barbara Cargill and I am your host for this segment of Polecast. Today, I'm going to be talking about Great Polls, the initiative itself. Great Polls uh, is an online website created and written by high schoolers and middle schoolers from all around Poland. The articles on the website are posted in English and are about famous and great, but maybe unknown and forgotten polls. If we get the opportunity, we also love to interview the people we write our articles about. We have interviewed three people so far. The first person is 
a Nobel Peace Prize recipient, Lech Wałęsa, who was a previous Polish president, as well as a famous Polish politician. It was the first time he was interviewed by teenagers. We have also interviewed the wife of Andrzej Panufnik, a famous Polish composer, about whom we talked on the 53rd episode of Polcast. And last, but definitely not least, is Jan Komasa, a contemporary Polish director. The Great Poles Project was also presented and officially opened on national television on TVP Polonia on the 1st of December of last year and in the British Embassy in Warsaw on the 19th December 2017. And as you can hear, the Great Poles Initiative also has its own segment on Polcast. Great Poles has many partners and one of them is the British Alumni Society, which encompasses alumni from British universities of Polish descent. Under its wing, it has taken an organization called Young Talent Management, which is an organization that organizes many different activities for youth and teenagers in Poland. For example, we have debate clubs and uh, we have public speaking meetings where we learn how to properly and effectively speak in public and the bay clubs are really interesting because in june there was actually a really really special debate that we helped with it was a debate between polish university students and polish university students from abroad but before the debate we had a closing ceremony of the competition hosted by the great poles project it was a very special competition to us we wanted a lot more people to hear about our initiative and more teenagers from around Poland to join in. The objective of the competition was to write the best article you can in English about a great poll and then send it to us. The winning articles were published in the Oxford University Press, which is very exciting for the winners. As I was saying, the final gala was held at the Royal Castle in Warsaw in the Old Town, which is very exciting, a very prestigious place. The debate between Polish university students and Polish university students from abroad um, was also held there at the same time. Yet another project that we're working on, whose main executive is Mateusz Giraudo, is called the Great Bengalis. But without further ado, maybe I should let Mateusz talk about the project himself. Hello, this is Mateusz Giraudo from Great Bull Speaking. Uh, and yes, currently I'm working on the project, uh, a very exotic project indeed, because uh, me as uh, as one of the uh, international development team members, uh, cooperate with a young man from uh, Bangladesh to create a sister website devoted to famous Bengalis, uh, which would be similarly called as our Polish um, website Great Pulse, and the one in Bangladesh would be called uh, great uh, Bengalis. And even though the project is still in the early phase, there is a move uh, forward. Uh, every time I contact Fazul, uh, who is the guy in charge of the project in Bangladesh, and what I can say uh, at the moment uh, is that 12 articles have been uh, written so far, and uh, the intro to the uh, website is uh, also done and um, I believe that this is a fantastic project uh, of its own kind because what do we actually uh, know about Bangladesh? Um, not, much, not much I guess. 
and the same uh, things happen with other less known countries. We are actually breaking the schemes and stereotypes. We believe that such countries as Bangladesh deserve to be uh, better known and uh, the world should learn about Bengalese great unrealized potential and I must say that they are uh, very nice uh, people, so warm, kind and hardworking and actually working with them is a true pleasure. Anyway, uh, the project is going in the right direction and we are looking forward to launching the website as soon as possible. That was amazing. Thank you, Mateusz, for shedding some light on what you're working on. As for the rest of you, remember to check out our website at greatpolls.pl and I hope to hear from you guys soon. Exactly a year ago, in episode 18, we talked about the first ever multi-stage contest, Olimpiada Wiedzy o Polsce, where elementary and high school students of Polish language schools in Canada and the United States were tested on and competed in their knowledge about Poland, its history, geography, culture, traditions, and this year also sports, all in the Polish language. This year, the Polish Language Teachers Association of Canada organized the contest again. I had the pleasure of attending its Jeopardy-style finals in Mississauga. One of the three member teams came all the way from Chicago. These are students at the Polish Holy Trinity School, one of 47 Polish Saturday schools operating in Chicago and Illinois. They were the best in semifinals and came to Toronto with their school principal, Maria Baram, their teacher Aneta Sokołowska, and their parents. I had a pleasure to talk to the three Chicago finalists. I'm really interested in, in your identity, because you guys are doing this all in Polish, but of course Polish is not your first language, is it? What's your name first? Uh, Julia Gogolski. Uh-huh. Um, I've been speaking Polish my entire life, but it's not my better language. English is obviously my better language. But it is a big part of my life, and it's part of like my pride and who I am. And I'm very proud that I am able to share my culture and who I am with everyone by speaking in Polish. But you were born in the States? Yes, I was born in Chicago. In Chicago. And so were you. What is your name? My name is Wiktoria Szczynowska, and I was also born in Chicago. Unlike Julia, I feel like I speak Polish better than I speak English. Because my, um, my family, they came to America in 1993. And, you know, they speak English, but it's not the best. You know, like their first years that they were here, it was Polish. And Polish was, you know, that's how I was raised. And just being in the culture and just everything is amazing. And it's just like, I always say that, you know, so it's like my heart is white and red and it's the flag. And it's just like, that's what I identify as. Like, I don't see myself as American. I see myself as Polish, even though I, I wasn't born there. My name is Michael Kolanko, and I actually learned Polish before I learned English. But then... Um, but you were born in the States as well? Yeah, I was born in Chicago. And... Then English took over in school and outside of school, so I just ended up learning English better than Polish. So now I, I try to like learn Polish as best as I can because my parents also came from Poland and I want to be the best as I can. Are most of your friends Polish? I have a good mix of Polish friends and friends of other cultures, but the friends that are Polish I have the biggest connection with because we have the most similarities and we can relate to each other more than I can with my other How you guys feel? Yeah, where I live, we don't really have that many Polish people in our area. And I, most of my friends are um, American, 
but when I come come to Polish school, I have many good friends that I can relate to. Yeah. How about you? Um, I agree. I feel like I have a, a very diverse group of friends because my my school is it's very diverse. It's like you can find anyone of any uh, culture, religion. You know, it's just it's amazing how we can all come together into a melting pot. But I'd say most of my friends are Polish, and it's like I feel like Polish school helps a lot with that because it's like that connection you have, and it's just it's a lifelong friendship that you couldn't be. Do you find that there is? general interest in Polish issues among your non-Polish friends? Um, some of them. It depends really who you ask. Because there's like some uh, kids and just, you know, like adults that are so politically invested and they care about what's going on in the world and others, you know, they don't even care what's going on in the United States given that they live there. So just I think it depends the person that you ask. Do you find that among your friends? Do you have like, I don't know, a non-Polish friend who really is interested and wants to know? I do. I have this one friend and his name is Abdul. He is Arabic and he is, you know, I'm curious about you know, like Palestine and like what's going on in his country and he's curious. He always asks me questions about Poland you know, like he supports me through like all of like the competitions and everything that I do so like I feel like that's the one friend that's generally interested in my culture mm-hmm. what do you say about that yeah in my school we don't like everybody's pretty much by themselves and like thinking about themselves and about America mostly mm-hmm. and not like other European countries maybe like other big like European countries like Germany or like countries like that like have like more power than other countries mm-hmm. so not Poland not mm-hmm. rarely I hear people talk about Poland in our do you go to Poland? yeah I go to Poland um, not every year but I t- we try to go every two years to meet our family there mm-hmm. and um, we love it every time we go we go for a month or two we saw pretty much our whole summer where do you come from like your family in Poland? Krakowia I do. I'm actually going right now in August. Yeah, um, we're from Białystok, and we 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 try to go as often as we can to see because we don't we don't have a lot of family. But what's there, we'd like to see. Yeah, I go every two three years. We don't really have always have the financial ability to go to Poland. It is especially yes. So, but every time I go, I cherish it. I always go for a month, a month and a half. Because Where do you come from in Poland? Um, I come from Krakow, the South Pole. Yeah. Is this important to you? This whole competition today? Um, I think it's important that we're here. It's it's a very like valuable thing for all of us to get to know other people who are like just like us from different places around the world. And it's also a great <laughs> experience and great learning time to learn more about the country that we all love so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I like. I'm very you know culturally invested in Poland and if there's an opportunity for me to go up and show what I know about my country then I will take it To learn more about this contest please visit our website at mypolcast.com Smacznego we're here talking about our love for eating Polish My name is Peter, and my name is Laura, and we wrote two Heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations, but updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today, we'd like to introduce you to a few delicious Polish sauces that are guaranteed to take your favorite dishes to the next level. Great sauces are the icing on the cake that can make or break a great dish. Classic Polish sauces are delicious, distinctive, and easy to prepare. Laura, don't you have some saucy tips you've learned over the years? Sure I do. Always cook your hot sauces slowly on a low to medium heat and always keep stirring. 
A good wooden spoon will be your BFF, best friend forever. Instant flour is a big help because it yields a smoother and less lumpy texture that takes less mixing. Never boil a sauce containing sour cream because it will separate. A separated sauce, however, can still be rescued by adding a bit more sour cream. Here are three classic Polish sauces that we rely on a lot. The first is a warm dill sauce. And as you know, many say that dill is the national herb of Polish cooking. This sauce is made with chicken or beef broth, a little flour, half a cup of sour cream, chopped dill, fresh is always best, and salt to taste. This dill sauce is amazing over roast beef, pork roast, or even grilled fish. You know, Poles love dried mushrooms, and for this warm sauce, you'll need an ounce of dried mushrooms, rehydrated and chopped, of course, some flour, four tablespoons of water, half a cup of sour cream, and as always, salt and pepper. Peter learned the hard way that dried mushrooms are often full of sand, so we always rinse them really well before hydrating them. Another tip is to never throw away the mushroom water that was used for rehydrating. It's just full of great flavor for your sauce. Combine the water and flour, then mix in the hot mushroom water or liquor slowly while stirring. Add the mushrooms and bring to a slow boil, continuing to stir. Then take the pot off the heat. Mix in the sour cream, but slowly. Add your salt and pepper a pinch at a time and keep tasting until you just love it. Dried mushroom sauce is perfect over meatballs, meatloaf, Polish hamburgers, pork roast, or any braised meats. That's one of my favorites. But here's another one that's really unique, a chilled apple horseradish sauce. The ingredients include five ounces of prepared horseradish right out of the jar, a large tart apple peeled and shredded, sour cream, of course salt, and a pinch of sugar. Mix the horseradish in the shredded apple, add the sour cream, season with the salt and sugar. Chill it for a couple of hours. The tang of this sauce is a great counterpoint to any cold meats or fish. The full recipes for these sauces, plus a few more, are on our website, www.polishclassiccooking. Just scroll down to the post on Getting Saucy, posted May 14, 2018. Smachnego. Well, guys, what about instant flour? What is instant flour? Never heard of it. It's, it's you can get it in the stores. It's a um, it's a kind of softer grind to the flour. It's almost like cake flour. Mm. Wow. And and it's just it just mixes faster. Comes in a blue can. Yeah. Not it, a bag. At least in the states. Yeah, at least yeah. in the states, right? <laughs> That's right. On the, on the blog, I've got a picture of a can of. Okay. A photo of, of, of the can. Okay, and then the, the mushroom liquor. I didn't know there was mushroom <laughs> liquor. What is? Yeah. That was my turn. That's no, my I turn. know. You have to explain this a little bit more because I was going to go to the liquor store and ask for mushroom liquor. That, yeah, that's, right. That's what they call anything that you um, you, you create by braising or, yeah. or rehydrating anything. Um, even like apricots or raspberries, and you get that flavor into the water, so they call it a liquor. I don't know. 
Wow, no, I, don't know I why, love it. We're that's... learning so much from you. Not just recipes, <laughs> but we're learning new vocabulary. <laughs> You've been listening to the 56th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia links, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions, and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know. And if you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. From time to time we leave you with one of the famous English language songs performed in Polish. And as always, I don't think this one needs any introduction. Thank you for listening to Polcast. Bezpieczny port Chcę oliwną być gałązką Podnieś mnie i leć Tańcz mnie po miłości kres Tańcz mnie po miłości kres Wtańcz mnie w swoje piękno Póki nikt nie widzi nas Tańcz mnie po miłości kres Tańcz mnie po miłości kres Tańcz mnie, tańcz mnie, tańcz 
Kończ mnie bardzo delikatnie, długo jak się da Bądźmy ponad tą miłością, pod nią bądźmy też Tańcz mnie po miłości kres Tańcz mnie po miłości kres Tańcz mnie do tych dzieci, które proszą się na świat Przez zasłony, które noszą pocałunków ślad są zdarte, lecz w ich cieniu można schronić się. Tańcz mnie po miłości kres. Tańcz mnie po miłości kres. Yeah. 